wondered what this podcast would be like if everything was the same, but we were also all high on weed. Well, you're in luck because on 420, we're doing a live JBU 420 Spectacular where myself and Allison will be high. And Melissa. Melissa's getting high too. We're all getting high, baby. We're having the time of our lives. So if you go to our Eventbrite link in the description of this episode, you will be able to watch live our show. We will have some amazing special guests. And also you will be able to watch a video of the episode for seven days afterwards if you can't make it at that exact time. So with your ticket, you will get to watch live if you want to, or you'll be able to watch later if you want to. Tickets are only $13 and you will get the most unfiltered access to JBU of all time. I'm very worried about what I'm going to say. I'm not. I get real loose. It's going to be so fun. Uh, (laughs) Please join us on 420. It's at 5.30 p.m. PST. You won't want to miss it. Uh, This is not an episode that's going to go up in the feed. So you got to see it that day or for seven days afterwards with your ticket. And then it's bye-bye because we are not liable for what we say. I'm I'm going to probably sing a lot. Maybe (laughs) dance. (laughs) Forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Oh, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I'm wearing makeup, but no one noticed. Hey, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and my mustache is coming in. What do you mean nobody noticed? Nobody said anything. You got your eyelashes done. And I'm wearing foundation and this blush thing and this eyeshadow. I'm wearing all this makeup and nobody said a goddamn thing. Remember how we would try on the same lipstick and it would look so bright on me and it wouldn't even make a difference on you? That's your your response? Remember that used to be a thing? Well, makeup looks very natural on you is what I'm saying. I don't look any different. Uh, You look like rested. And I like the eyelashes. What made you do the eyelashes again? Oh, I always like to do that. I just had to stop because I thought I was maybe allergic to it. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> but this is, I've been doing lash lift, which is different than eyelash extensions. So it's oh. less often and less expensive because it's less often. They look great. Thank you. I mean, you just also- Just out here fishing and fishing I for will a compliment. Say, I will say that you have great skin. So it's hard to, like, you put foundation on it. I'm like, foundation on what? You're putting a hat on a hat here. You got but great it's glowy. skin. It's glowy and it's even. Yeah, I guess. I mean, you have good skin I anyway. Know. John says it looks really nice. <laughs> it does. <laughs> I think I went through a week where I didn't have good skin and then I panicked and said, oh no, I better start wearing makeup. And then by the time the makeup came, I already, my skin was back to good. Yeah. But I decided to play with it anyway, just because it's kind of fun. Yeah. it's. I'm glad that you are like doing that. And like trying, you know, experimenting and stuff. I'm just out here trying to find joy. I love that. (laughs) I've just accepted. I have I have dermatologist creams and I've just accepted that I got my skin is just how it is. It's just it is what it is. It's getting better. And I make sure that I'm not like having like eczema and stuff. But in terms of acne, I'm like, what are you going to do? I mean, acne feels like something we just get forever. Like if you if like if, it's like I yeah, feel like I whatever. grew up thinking it was for teenagers, but no. it's not. It's for everybody always. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm like, what are you gonna do? Like, is somebody not gonna like me because I have a pimple? Okay, then I don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> this is 
just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. Well, we have an amazing guest who I'm really excited to have on. And and trigger warning is about child sexual abuse materials. And um, but but Leah is an amazing activist and advocate. And and I think this was like a really great, important interview. And I'm glad we did it. Me too. They were so informative and inspiring. And um, I think it was it was probably one of my favorites. Yeah, you seemed really inspired. You were smiling kind of the whole time, even though it was a dark subject. I, w- I hope I wasn't smiling. No, but I was you looked just like really, Yeah, you looked like you really like agreed with a lot and were really happy with, with what they were saying. I hope so. Yeah, I was. Yeah. And later we're going to be talking all about avoidance. What do we avoid in our daily lives? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means? Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Laura, Boston. Laura, TLDR. I like when we get a little TLDR. Yeah. TLDR says, how do you call in someone without making them defensive? Oh, boy. Hi, Gabe and Allison and Melissa. Hey. First off, I want to say what a huge fan I am of you both. As a fellow bi-con who struggles with mental health issues, I relate to so much of what you two have shared over the years. Thank you for everything you do. I've loved your content since the BuzzFeed days, and I'm so excited couch videos are back. Oh, yeah, they are at youtube.com slash justbetweenus. You can watch us on the couch. And as someone who does not understand Reddit, I'm loving the new podcast series. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Laura says, my question is, how do you call in someone who is inherently defensive? I'm from the Midwest, but I've been living on the East Coast for the last eight years. My family all lives in the Midwest, and even though they are fairly progressive and open-minded, I often feel like I'm living in a completely different world than them. The conversations I have with my partner, friends, and coworkers about political and social issues often feel very different from the ones I have with my family back home. Recently on a Zoom call with my family, the topic of saying unhoused versus homeless came up. This is not something I know a lot about, but since I've seen activists and the JBU pod use unhoused, I feel confident that this is a more appropriate term to use. I explained this, but my mom and stepdad seemed very perplexed by this being an issue at all. What was even more upsetting was that my brother became really defensive and went on a long rant about how one word shouldn't be deemed offensive if it has the same meaning as another unoffensive word. This was not the first time my brother has acted defensive and even angry during discussions like these. On the call, I shared that I felt like as people who have been fortunate enough to never be unhoused, We should respect and defer to those who have direct links to that experience to determine what is or is not appropriate to say. But the entire conversation was really upsetting. It's hard to talk to someone when their response to anything they haven't considered before is anger, defensiveness, and opposition. Part of me wants to never have conversations like these with my brother at all because it's difficult to deal with his intense and volatile responses. But I also feel a level of responsibility to educate or call in him and the rest of my family, since they are not always exposed to some of these ideas and views. What do you think? Is it possible to call in someone who is inherently defensive? Is there a way to do it that might lessen the intensity of their reactions? Appreciate any insights you have. First thing I want to say, Laura, is that you're under no obligation to do anything that stresses you out or makes you have elevated levels of anxiety or makes your life harder. You're under no obligation to do it. So don't worry about that. Two. I think that the reason people get so defensive is because they jump to the idea that you're calling them a bad person. 
And that's really hard to undo because for most people, when you say, hey, actually, you should say this, it is very hard for them to divorce that from, okay, I so I'm about like a rejection almost. Um, so that's why I think people have these really intense responses because they're like, well, I can't keep up with everything and I'm still a good person. And I think people are really hung up on whether or not they're a good person. And Allison talks about this with regards to the abortion debate too, like saying like people just want to so badly to be like, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. And so if you can in any way be like, this is not me judging you. This is not me saying you're a bad person. I'm just bringing you information. You can do with it as you will. Like I, I think sometimes presenting it as you should do this versus being like, I'm just telling you what I've heard and you can do with it what you want is maybe a something to think about framing it as, but you're also under no obligation to sit and take like verbal abuse from someone. <laughs> yeah, just reiterating what Gabe said is like, I totally understand the feeling of like, oh, but I have access to these people. I might be the only way that they hear about this. Like, isn't it right. my responsibility to change their mind? But I think it is so true that like all you can do is try and only on days where you have the emotional bandwidth to even do so. Right. And then in terms of like a trick slash manipulation. Um, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Something I do a lot when I'm explaining something that I know might bump for another person is I will explain my own trajectory with it a bit. Yeah. Where it will be like, yeah, at first, like this didn't make sense to me or like I didn't know to do this. Just to like let people know that it's not like, oh, I've always known this. And if you didn't always know this then you're bad or mm -hmm. uninformed, it's like, yeah, this bumped for me too. But like then I thought about it or I heard about this or I just tried really hard. And then I now I'm able to understand it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that even like with with Gabe's name change and pronoun change and stuff of I think just sometimes acknowledging that like I think there's so much fear and like messing that up yeah. for people and so like a thing I'll do a lot is like oh like it's not something that like in one day I was able to do perfectly like it's about you've messed up maybe once oh wow you've not you haven't messed up really at all well, I'm trying really hard but <laughs> But I'm just saying like it is a thing that it's not like, oh, and a good person in one day would automatically never right. mess up ever. Right. I say I try to be like, yeah, like it is difficult. And like I have and like the thing that I try to do is I just try to if I do mess up, I try to correct myself right away. Yeah, it was so fast. But like I think if you take the approach of like, well, and 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 like you better not mess up ever. Yeah, and yeah. like then, you know, like there's a thing of like letting people into the the journey of it or like with certain things, like certain ideas, like at first I didn't understand why, like we can't use certain language for certain mm -hmm. stuff. And I was using it. And then it was like, but then this person told me this thing. And then that's when I realized like kind of mm -hmm. just like taking through like from your point of view, instead of like putting it on their point of view or their yeah. experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. You know, sometimes language changes, language evolves, right? Like you could meet an unhoused person who is like, I don't care to be called that. Or, right. you know, the whole debate around Latinx, where it's like a lot of Latin people are like, literally, we don't care about Latinx. Like, it, there's not a consensus on it. You know what I mean? You can say the people that I respect and admire use this, but 
it, there's you can look it up for yourself. Like there's not a consensus on this idea and there never will be on any sort of like labeling. So you can say, I think the people that I admire and what I'm cho- choosing to do is this. I'm just telling you this information. And I think sometimes people feel like, oh, well, language changes too often and I can't change. But like, it does change all the time. Like there are words that you're like, I would not use now. You know what I mean? So like, you know, you know, it's like when people say, I can't use the singular they, but then they'll say, oh, somebody left their umbrella. Right. And I'm like, you know, you do know You know how, how to, to change. use it. So I think, or you do know how to not say, like, why do you say the N word instead of, because you do know. Mm-hmm. So like, I mean, I don't know, I'm guessing for your family. So I also think there's this difficult thing where, so my family is from, is in the South and they're in Florida. I don't want to make it seem better than it is. They're in Florida. And I think that they, there's this idea that because I moved away, I'm some sort of elite nitpicker. And that was like the thing that happened. Like you're in Boston now, Laura, and like, God, Boston's not as progressive as it likes to think it is. But there is this resistance or resentment to initially, at least with my family, to to make the changes because they think that I'm in some sort of like bubble, right? So like I came back, my sister went to Florida State University. Their mascot is the Seminoles. So I came back home one time and my sister was wearing a lot of Seminoles memorabilia that has a racist stereotype of uh, Native American on it. And I was like, hey, I don't think, I mean, I'm I'm happy for you to wear Florida State merch. I don't think you should buy the stuff with this logo on it. And I don't think it's a good logo. And my dad, who didn't even go there, the two of them fought me on it for a while. And they were like, well, it's actually uh, in celebration of blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, it's like literally a red-faced Native American. But they were like, it's, it's, it's whatever. And they were really against it. And so I just had to like, say that and then that's my piece and then let it go and then a couple years later they were both like yeah that was bad I mean that's the thing with defensiveness right is it's this immediate reaction but you never know what is sinking in to somebody and also modeling behavior so people see how you talk about things Mm -hmm. what language you use they might be picking up on that more than you think instead of feeling like oh I need to have an intense debate about this like you know in their face or like you know I need to call it out every single time. I think kind of like saying your piece, thinking that maybe it will sink in more than you realize and then and then using the right terms yourself. I think you could be like, I respect you too. Like some of it to me is is interesting because it's like I, they'll, it's like I respect you, but I'm not going to hear you out on your opinion, which I find happens in families. Like, you know, I think with like, knowing a trans person, it's, it's different for people that know me than for like people, families somewhere who like don't know a trans person. I've never met a trans person. So are just hearing this anti-trans rhetoric and are sort of like, yeah, okay. Like they're not hearing any other side. And I think if there's a thing of, I always thought if, if you love and respect your child or your sibling, why wouldn't you hear them out? Like, it's this very strange thing of, Someone being like, yeah, I I've like hear families being like, yeah, like I love and respect you, but I'm just never going to understand this non-binary thing that you're doing. Or I'm just never going to understand this aspect of something you're telling me. And it's like, well, then do you love and respect me? I would be like, listen, I love and respect you. 
I'm telling you my opinion. If you love and respect me, you can just say, I don't agree or whatever. But like, I always think, and you don't have to phrase it like this, but I always think, how can you say you love me if you're like not even hearing me? I mean, the thing that's so hard about this stuff, one of the aspects I should say is it is revealing often about people's worldview in a broader Mm -hmm. sense. And so, you know, I really liked the way Laura was getting to the point of being like, well, I've never had this experience and therefore of being unhoused. And therefore I, you know, refer to people who have had that experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is like a fundamental difference between people in a way where like, you know, another tactic I'll use is sometimes I'll say, look, like I don't totally understand why this is the preference or why Mm -hmm. this is a thing. But I but I probably don't understand because I have not had that experience. Right. And so I'm able to recognize that, like, something doesn't need to make, quote unquote, logical sense to me for it to be valid for the people who are experiencing it. And that's a different thing, because there's the other the other side of that is the other person is scared. It's like two types of people or just the other person is not able to separate themselves from something Mm -hmm. and that everything in the world needs to make sense through their point of view and their lived experience. And so a lot of these issues will bring out what type of person you are. Mm -hmm. And it can be really upsetting to find out the people that you love and are close to are the type of people that can't take that leap of logic or leap of faith to say, maybe I, maybe my opinion on this is, is not the right one because I'm, I haven't had that experience or I'm not from that group or I don't understand or I don't have the context. And so instead of assuming that I have to always be right because I'm only comfortable when I'm right, they're able to say, I'm probably wrong about this and I will defer to the people that know better. (laughs) And then there are people that cannot handle being wrong Yep. or can't handle the idea that other people experience life differently than them. And so that's just and, and, that, and unfortunately, I don't know how much of a fixed characteristic that is. Like, I really believe in change, but I think change also has to be motivated. Mm-hmm. And these people might just feel way more comfortable always being right and never having to challenge their own beliefs. And again, all I can say to that is like, that sucks, but it's not your responsibility right. to fight that uphill battle every day with with somebody in your life. Yeah, you can mention it and then you can let it go because it's it's hard because sometimes I'm like, well, but if they're voting, (laughs) like you want to make sure that they're not voting on anti-trans stuff or on like stuff that's going to do sweeps of of like unhoused encampments or whatever, like. But it's also prioritizing certain things, right? It's like, when, when is there an opening? When does it make, like, if, is there an election coming up? Is there something on the ballot here? Yeah. Is that worth a bigger conversation Mm -hmm. um, versus just like every interaction feeling like you have to brace yourself for a fight of some kind? Yeah. Hopefully that helps. Thank you for doing the good work, even (laughs) though it's so hard. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Leah Juliet. So stay tuned. Just between us. Welcome back. 
back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Leah Juliet, an award-winning writer, speaker, organizer, activist, and lived experience expert on image-based sexual abuse and gender-based violence. Leah is the CEO of Survivor Social Media LLC and the founder of the Reclaim My Name movement and March Against Revenge Porn, Inc. Leah's book, Naked in Public, is available worldwide. Thank you so much for being here. This is a topic that we really probably should have covered by now, so I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. So can we kind of dive in to what led you to this work? Why this specific? Why this specific? You know, uh, like many folks who get thrust into activism, it was heavily rooted in trauma. So (laughs) that's always a good place to start. I was 14 at my high school. I, I went to a public high school and I was pressured into sending nude photos of myself to a boy who I really wanted to like me at the time. I was growing up in this town that was this hyper-conservative hub in the state of Connecticut, which is generally a very democratic, liberal state. And so I felt very unsafe, and I really, really wanted to be loved. And so I sent him these photos, and he didn't love me. He was like, where are the juicier photos? Where's your vagina? And I was like, I simply can't send those to you. I am 14. But he went on to post the photos of me, four nude photos of me with my face in them, on a worldwide anonymous image board that categorizes photos, specifically, oftentimes, child sexual abuse material and non-consensual photos. And it categorizes them by uh, country, state, town, and oftentimes high school, and associates them with their name. So I, from, you know, 14, 15 onwards was actively being sexually exploited. My images were essentially being trafficked around the world and I had no way to stop it. And I stayed silent. I didn't tell anyone besides, you know, my peers who knew what was going on, but I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell my teachers, my mental health professionals. I was afraid of getting in trouble because I had seen girls in my middle school get arrested for sending nude photos of themselves because at the time it was they blamed the individual who sent the photos for producing child pornography, even if they were photos taken of themselves under coercion or any other instance. So, yeah. So for like five years, I was suffering in silence. My photos were being circulated. Nobody, everyone had seen me naked. I had been naked in public, essentially, like my the title of my book. But then I turned 19 and I was in my college dorm room and I opened up my laptop and I saw the the man, the boy who s- posted my photos, his mugshot being circulated. He was on the run for sexually assaulting a minor. And I was like, oh, <laughs> hell no, we're done. They call this Dr. Spring Cooper, who is a researcher on this subject, calls this the fuck it moment. Mm. And sorry, you could... No, 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 we love it. We love the real name. Okay, cool. So yeah, it's the fuck it moment. And so many activists and lived experience experts who end up going into activism have this moment when a light switch like turns off or turns on in this case. And I was like, I am no longer going to accept this, that this happened. I am no longer going to allow this to happen to anyone else. And so that's when I started telling my story. I started telling it in the form of a poem that I performed in front of the White House and like this radical act of reclamation at the time, what it was for me. And and then I started hosting protest marches and started doing other forms of activism and talking on the news. And 
I just knew that, you know, this man could steal my body. This man could steal my image. This man could steal my autonomy, but he sure as hell could not steal my voice. And by not shutting up, I was making sure that this won't continue to happen, um, at least in the same ways that it happened to me. So that's kind of the background. <laughs> no, the, I mean, thank you for sharing that. And like, obviously, sharing that story has probably helped so many people. How is that site allowed to operate if it's child porn? Uh, yeah, well, the, sh the site has been shut down. This specific site has been shut down many times. It was raided in 2018 by the Dutch police, which is when my photos were finally taken down. But different iterations of the website continue to pop up. Wow. And because they're located in other countries, they don't have any reason to comply. They right. can just, you know, and, and they have, I don't, gosh, I don't remember what they call it, but it's like an archive of all the content, even the content that was previously taken down. So it's really like this monstrous beast yeah. that it's impossible in many ways to, to penetrate and to tackle because, I mean, it almost reminds me of like the whole Andrew Tate situation. Like Andrew Tate is incarcerated, but he has his whole army of followers who will continue doing the work for him even when he can't. Right. It's kind of the same when you have thousands or millions of young people or men or whomever who are actively posting photos and looking for these spaces for this non-consensual content to exist. Like as soon as the, the leader gets incarcerated or the website gets shut down, there's a million people and websites ready to fill their their place. Yeah. Sorry, I should have also said child sexual abuse material. I was using a colloquialism, but no, that's OK. No, it's good. <laughs> it's yes. good to to know about that. Yeah, I was actually going to say that's not that's not the right term to use. Right. We don't right. we it's, don't say child porn. Right. We don't. But we don't anymore. But at the time when I first started talk speaking out, which was in 2016, this was before the Women's March. This was before the election of Donald Trump. So there wasn't like a national feeling of camaraderie around the subject of ending sexual violence. And so, you know, a lot of times when I talked about this on television, it would be referred to as child pornography. Right. I would be called a child pornographer. And it's been wonderful to see the national shift in language around child sexual abuse material because that so much more makes me feel like it was something that happened to me and not something yes. that I did wrong. And it's easier now with that language and just with removing the, the name revenge porn or porn exactly. in general, because pornography, there's nothing wrong with pornography at all. But nudity is not inherently pornographic and posting non-consensual images does not mean that we consented to our bodies being used for pornography. Right. I'd love to kind of get into how the legal system has been trying to deal with these things, because you kind of alluded to that at the time when it happened to you, they were still like persecuting the the children themselves whose own bodies were then shared. Right. From someone. Like how have the rules changed and how do the rules still need to change? I mean, there's there's a lot. I believe it's 48 states now have legislation to criminalize image based sexual abuse in some capacity. The issue is that state by state, the laws are very different. So in Connecticut, the, the perpetrator could face different penalties. I could have different access to justice than perhaps right over the state line in New York. And so because of that, activists and advocates like myself have been pushing for legislation like the SHIELD Act, which is the Stopping Harmful Image Exploitation and Limiting Distribution Act, which uh, was supposed to be a part of the Violence Against Women Act reauthorization that happened last year. And at the last minute, it, it didn't work out and it wasn't uh, added. 
So we still don't have legislation that would criminalize this issue. And there's also legislation. There's also other avenues to seeking justice in this way. And and that would be holding the tech platforms accountable, which a lot of activists, including myself, are are actively trying to champion. Um, The issue is that the tech platforms, the, the wealthy, the wealthy white men who are capitalizing off of users who use their platform in any type of way don't have any incentive to prevent abusers from abusing abusing their platforms because under section 230 of the communications decency act uh, the tech platforms aren't held liable for individual abusive users on their platform and what they do so by you know limiting their immunity we give them more of an incentive to actually fight against things like child sexual abuse material or non-consensual material or trafficking on their platforms. But by getting rid of my personal opinion, and I think that like this kind of, uh, if you watched the recent Pornhub documentary on Netflix, which just, which just came out and is quite uh, popular right now, it poses a lot of questions about the line between, you know, sex workers and porn and child sexual abuse material and holding these companies accountable. And I think that the truth exists in the middle, which is there can be sex, sexual content. There can be consensual porn and there can be a sex industry. We can support sex workers and we can hold the tech platforms accountable for allowing abuse to happen and prevent non-consensual content and abusive content from existing. We don't have to choose one or the other. They're both mutual fights, I think, for marginalized and oppressed and victimized vulnerable communities. How do we eliminate the shame? Because I'm just thinking of there's been so many suicides with young people related to this type of thing. Like, how do we allow for a a situation where a young girl or a, a young guy, I mean, that's the start of the Trevor Project, like to come forward and you know, and and even like tell their parents or even like, you know, say to the counselor at school what's going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we need to stop siloing like individual instances and start recognizing these all as acts of violence that happen on the internet that needs to be stopped. You know, if we think of 2000, I believe it was 2014, Tyler Clementi. Yep. His death was image-based sexual abuse. His you know, he was streamed by his roommate. And that's image abuse. We don't often talk about it like that. We often say it was bullying. And it is, but it's all grouped together. Same with Amanda Todd, who who lost her life to suicide in Canada. That was also image-based sexual abuse. And so I think it's starting to talk about these things for what they are and not getting wrapped up in the sensationalism of them and the clickability of so many of these stories and really starting to get back to the root of the humanity in them. And that's what I'm trying to do. I consider myself a lived experience expert because I utilize my story specifically in the stories of others to try to generate social change because I think that storytelling leads to increased empathy. Empathy leads to action and action leads to change. So when we're talking to these lawmakers, when we're talking to folks who may be in the middle and don't understand these issues or who see them or the language around them and get intimidated by such an intense, I guess, topic. It's about getting back to the humanity. It's about reaching down into, you know, the hearts and the souls of these legislators and saying, you know, online abuse is permanent. 
it's lasting, it's seething, it's painful, and nobody deserves that type of pain. Not you, not your neighbor, no one. And as far as the shame piece, I personally have found that shame is not something that we can really eradicate altogether. It's embedded into us. It's who we are as humans, and there's nothing wrong with that. So it's about using that shame in a way that's productive and healthy for you. That energy, you might not be able to necessarily get rid of, especially if you're actively being traumatized and abused, but you can mold it and turn it into something powerful. For me, that was that that power pushed me across the bridge when I led the first March Against Revenge porn in Brooklyn. And that shame, that power of that shame, I reclaim it and I use it in everything that I do. I have to harness it in that way because without it, I would just be a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And that shame makes it personal. It reminds me that I am still the same person that this happened to. How do we how do we educate and and how do we get through to people who think that this is fine that they did this or that, you know, it's interesting that the person who did this to you, who victimized you, went on to victimize someone else. And it's like, I'm just like, how do we get these fucking high school boys to understand that this is not cool? Yeah, I think it means that we need to start before high school. Yeah, We need to start before they get there. I think we need to have comprehensive digital education, digital consent education, and digital sex education, starting from an extremely young age. We need to teach young people how to use their their smartphones and social media safely. We need to teach young people what to do if they are in danger. If something does happen to them, we're not going to shut you out. You're not going to get in trouble. You can come to us, you know, whether that be your parents or a teacher or someone that you can confide in. And we need to teach young people, specifically young boys, because we know that 90% of victims of image-based sexual abuse are women. We need to specifically teach them that other people's bodies, whether that be the image of their body or their physical body, do not belong to them. By having these conversations from a really young age, even though, you know, parents will probably say it's too young to be talking to my kids about this, but if we're examining the conversations that are actually happening, we're really having conversations like this already. And and I, I think it's completely necessary to use accurate language. So that way people, young people, when they're either being victimized or when they act out, because I I believe like deeply that hurt people hurt people. And I know that young boys who have been taught to turn their pain or their disappointment or their embarrassment into an act of violence because they don't know how to, they weren't taught to feel their emotions. They were taught to be ashamed of them. So I think that the shame conversation needs to be extended. We need to talk about how to prevent young boys from becoming perpetrators, how to prevent perpetrators from becoming perpetrators who recommit, how to prevent recidivism. And all of this is just, you know, there's so much interconnected uh, political stuff when it comes to all of these topics, I think. I also think that this feels like a real uphill battle in a way because it is a really easy for people to fall into victim blaming where it is that mm-hmm. sense of, but if you hadn't taken that photo in the first place, if you hadn't sent that in the first place, and how much are you bumping up against that? Even for minors, how do you deal with with that like response? I mean, I've 
gotten that response of so course. much. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm thinking of one video I did with CNN in like 2017 or 2016. And I was in college and I had no idea really what I was talking about at the time. I was just trying to be honest and tell my story. And all of the comments were like, you know, she did this to herself and, you know, they shouldn't have sent the pictures in the first place and whatever. And it was painful because it made me question my own integrity. It made me gaslight myself. Like, is this really my fault? Did I do something wrong? Am I, is, is my reality not real? You know, if all of these people are seeing me as something that I, I don't understand. The thing is that, you know, our mindset on this has evolved over time. When I started talking about this, I would perpetuate those, you know, that rhetoric. I would say, you know, if you don't want an image on a billboard on the highway, don't take it. Because that is what I thought was the best advice at the time. And that's what other people were telling me. Now I know, you know, seven years later that nudity does not pornography make and an image when it is taken at one moment in time, the story of consent can be started and ended at any moment. And just because I took an image on a Friday in December does not mean on a Saturday in January that anyone can do what they want with it. So it's about getting past the initial image being taken. If you took it consensually, of course, there's many of these instances where this happens non-consensually and people are filmed while being abused or intoxicated and things like that. But it's about getting beyond that one moment of consent when the photo was taken and talking about all of the other moments where consent was broken when the photo was disseminated afterwards. Yeah, there's that perfect victim narrative, right, of the person who didn't know that their right. you know, boyfriend was taking the picture. They didn't know that they were being filmed or, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, that's like the one where it's like, oh, but that's the perfect victim. And even then it would be like, well, why was she so drunk? Like, why, you know, why didn't she? It's just like, it's just the same rape culture bullshit. It really is bullshit, like 100%. And I find that I've changed my gender expression a lot over time. When I started speaking out against this, I believe I had like a buzzed head or like a colorful mohawk or something. Right. And, you know, I, I binded my chest and I wore more masculine presenting clothing. So because of that, I was much more targetedly harassed. Of course. Based on my identity, just people just saying horrendous things and misgendering and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I find that now that I actively am often more femme presenting, even though my identity hasn't changed, people tend to be more willing to listen to me. Mm. And I find I, I don't know why I, I, I don't really have much of an explanation, but I think that the compounding like, OK, like they look maybe like they're queer or trans and they're talking about this issue it presented much more of a danger for me, yeah. the intersectionality. And so when you talk about victims of, of crime and, and victims of child abuse and sexual abuse, we also have to make sure that we're including intersectionality in these conversations because queer folks, trans folks, black and brown folks, and you know, young people are disproportionately victimized by these acts of violence. And so if we're not centering these marginalized communities in our activism, then a lot of people are being left behind. Right. You're like kind of a femme presenting, like non-binary person who it looks like a victim where it's like, you know, if you went missing, there'd be missing white woman syndrome. You know what I mean? Like it's that very sort of, oh, now I look like the perfect victim. Whereas I right. think, I mean, that happens to, to 
fat people. That happens to, like you said, black and brown people. Like it's very that thing of like, well, <laughs> I wouldn't rape that or whatever. And it's like, oh, okay. That was said to me so I'm many sure times. It was. I'm sure it was because you have a shaved head, which is, you know, that's the, that's the rhetoric. So it's like, yeah, it's just this, you talked about earlier that it's kind of like a hydra. Like it's just this thing where you cut off one leg and another leg grows. I mean, how do you feel motivated or how do you see any like little wins and stuff? People are terrible. That's all I'm going to say is that like everything you're saying is so great. And I'm just like in my head being like, people are terrible. The comment section on your shit must be like the worst of humanity. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Uh, But here's the thing. Yes. And, you know, when I was 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, I never thought that I would live to see 26. Like, I actively didn't plan to be alive past, like, 21. Mm -hmm. I either thought that I was going to kill myself or someone was going to kill me or alcohol was going to kill me. I, I was very, I was using alcohol a lot to numb my pain. And so every day feels like a little win. Every day that I get to, like, pet my cats and wake up in the morning And some days I'm talking to legislators and some days I'm, you know, doing cool things and filming videos and and that all feels like little wins, too. But if I only saw the victories in the work and not also in the healing, then it would be a lot easier to be intimidated by the lack of progress that we've seen on these issues over the last seven years. But every day I do things for my younger self. I constantly think about what my younger self would have wanted, what she, and I use she, her pronouns and I'm talking about my younger self. Yeah, the past. Yeah, uh, what she would have needed and being that person for her. Yeah. And it, it, that is powerful for me. As far as like legislative little victories and stuff, I mean, last month I I was in Miami, Florida for a a global conference on image-based sexual abuse. And I got to meet with and speak with folks in 19 different countries who are actively fighting against this issue from from literal political leadership in South Africa and Australia to activists fighting against this in the UK. And it was so inspiring to not only know that I wasn't alone, because in 2013, when this was happening, I was like, I don't even I don't know another person who I could ever even talk to about this. But now to actually see that seven years later, there's a global coalition of people who care about this. I mean, that's a huge victory in itself. I love how you frame that. And I think, you know, the focus on the healing and on your individual joys is so powerful. Stick around after the break and we'll be right back. Just between us. And we're back. And then I don't know if this falls under the type of things you think about or talk about, but just in terms of non-consent, I wonder if if the topic of parents posting their children without their consent on social media is something you have thoughts about. I do have thoughts about that, but they're thoughts that are nuanced and that change. And that's okay too. I think it's hard because I think the intentions are never, well, often not bad. You know, parents want to share their images of their kids. They're, they're adorable. They're cute. 
But I also think that that desire to, you know, share needs to be um, equipped with a significant amount of information as to the risk, as to what could potentially happen to these photos, as to, you know, if their kid, like deep consideration, would your child 10 years from now feel comfortable knowing that that photo of them was online? Because regardless of the intent, photos on the internet are forever. They will be forever. If you posted them on your Facebook and you have two friends versus if you posted them on Twitter with a million followers, like the photo can be forever and people do have malicious intent. So I think just making the most informed decisions that you can and trying to be as like authentic and honest with how you feel about it at the time and, and use that to inform what you do. I, it's, it's a hard it's a hard situation. What do you think about it? I think it is a risk not worth taking, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like, I mean, obviously, you know, here or there, I guess. But I do think there's like going to be this reckoning as people grow up of like, I, you know, this stuff's out there. I think a lot of parents go overboard with what they show. And I mean, it's I agree. one thing to show like, oh, they're blowing out a birthday cake because it's their first and you know, like fine. But like, you know, bath photos, like all these photos. Oh, like there I, was I, this fucking woman that did, was a friend of an ex of mine. And what, I, she was she would post like the kid like say literally the kid would be like, stop filming me. And she would be like, isn't this funny? Yeah. Yeah. So it freaks me out. I mean, also, my sister has two children and she's never once posted them on social media. And I think that that's been a real role model approach to me. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's an extreme, but I, I don't know. It, it is something that makes me feel icky. It's also difficult, right? Because in terms of pedophilia, it feels mm-hmm. like this big bad that is like around every corner with every, you know, and and pedophilia in itself is a very complex and nuanced where a lot of people who have these desires don't want to have like it is like a very hard thing and in some countries it's not criminalized or thought of the same way as it is thought of in America and and so you know to say don't post the photo it's like well am I then just like fear-mongering that there's a pedophile around every turn but it's no it's the, it's the internet and the people that want those things can find those things is right what's so complicated about it right it is complicated what about deep fakes everyone's like oh any picture you've ever posted they're just gonna make porn of you yeah it's uh ai generated intimate images i don't think we've seen a percentage of the capability of of what they could be in the future yet and what's so dangerous about them is because is that it's become increasingly harder to to determine a real image or video from a fake or doctored image or video um, I have an incredible friend named Noelle Martin, who is a survivor of AI-generated intimate images. Um, and she's from Australia, and she she talks about this a lot. She has a really wonderful TED Talk. Uh, I would recommend listening to, her, to it. But at the end of the day, taking someone's image, whether it just be their face and then superimposing it onto pornography or whatever the case may be, it's it's revoking someone's ability to consent regarding what their image is used for, regarding if their body is sexualized, whether if their image is exploited. And so it doesn't matter if their face was then put on pornography or their body, whatever. It's it's a it's a refusal to listen to the needs and the uh, requests, the consent of the individual in the image. So, yeah, they're (laughs) super dangerous. It just comes down to consent. Yeah. 
I mean, I think so. And just because someone posts a a picture of themselves, even like a public photo, it doesn't at all mean that that photo can be edited or altered. Um, I, you know, that's why putting watermarks and stuff on photos can be helpful, although those can be edited out. There's just so many ways that people who want to commit abusive acts can, you know, circumvent the different ways in which we try to prevent them from doing it. And so that's why I think that we always need to be one step ahead. We always need to know, you know, their next trick and exposing those tricks is, you know, important because it keeps people safe. And also having a different mindset where if an image like that does say come out about somebody that the instant reaction is to Mm. view them as someone who's been abused and to not engage with the content and to not look at it for shits and giggles and instead to say, oh, this person's a victim and we should take action against the perpetrator. Right. You don't need to look at it to prove that it existed. (laughs) Just believe believe survivors. Um, That's also a thing with with reporting that I found ethically reporting on survivor stories is that so oftentimes reporters, which I, I, it makes sense, ethical journalism, you want sources, you want to confirm, but it causes survivors to re-traumatize ourselves by having to then find proof and images and text messages and things like that. So I, I think that there's a long way to go when it comes to telling survivor stories in, in a helpful way as well. What advice would you give to somebody who has been a victim of this And is like trying to figure out if it is worth, you know, trying to go after the perpetrator because going after somebody in this kind of thing is very intense and can be very distressing and can open yourself up to a lot of, you know, horrible feedback like you experienced. And then I imagine there are people out there that say, well, but am I, you know, but do I have this responsibility to call out this perpetrator so it doesn't happen again? You know, so how do you like what advice do you give to somebody who just like isn't sure what to do once that's happened to them? You know, when I work with survivors, when folks reach out to me and, you know, want my help, the first like my top priority just as an advocate is we want them to stay safe. So there's no responsibility on any person who has survived or been a victim of an act of sexual violence to then speak about it or to share their story or to, you know, prevent the, their abuser from recommitting. That, like, that's not their responsibility. Their responsibility is staying safe and prioritizing them. Because oftentimes, what, well, always what happens in these instances is that when we're traumatized, it almost feels like our trauma replaces who we are. And we take a back seat. The trauma is in the front seat and that's how we heal and that's how we preserve ourselves. And so by focusing on what the survivor needs and what they want to do and and just following them and giving them resources, I guess it's different for every situation is what I'm trying to say. I know that, you know, the legal route and, you know, pursuing a civil case is also exhausting. And I personally haven't done that. I I never was able to uh, have anything happen to my perpetrators um, because of the statute of limitations. But personally, speaking out, sharing my story, becoming an advocate has been life-saving for me. And so I always tell that to other survivors that when they're ready, if they feel like it's something that they want to do, 
do it and let me help you and let me provide you with the resources to get your story to where you want it to be. It's really all about what the survivor wants, how they can best make change in their life to be better. Yeah. And then for me to just help them however they want to pursue that. Chrissy Chambers is someone who sued, right? And and won. Yeah, Chrissy won the UK's first image-based sexual abuse case, I believe. Chrissy is so important to me because when I was being victimized, her video, I saw it at some point, which was telling her story. And that was the first time I had even heard the term revenge porn. Yeah. And then we ended up being on a BBC radio interview like a year later together. And and we've, you know, known each other ever since. But Chrissy's story is, is incredibly powerful. It's incredibly powerful to see a survivor take on a perpetrator in the legal system and and come out on top like that's mm-hmm. that's like the best possible case scenario and I, I want that justice for anyone and everyone but and <laughs> justice looks different for anyone and everyone justice for some people is being able to get out of bed their photos they don't have to worry about that their photos are online and they're able to live a private life when your image is exploited it often feels deeply scary intimidating traumatizing and triggering to have a public facing image in any way so that's why you know, for some victims, you know, they may never want to get their picture taken again. And and that's okay, too. And justice might look like finally feeling like I can take a selfie and not feel scared. And mm-hmm. and so that's why listening to the needs of survivors, I think, is the most paramount thing. Well, this has been so amazing. And, and now I have to do that awkward shift where I ask if you want to play a game show. Obviously, I do. (laughs) (laughs) So this game is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabe are going to be my contestants. I'm going to ask a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have. And then you tell me what you would do in that situation. And I either agree or disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) So our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You have been with your partner of 37 years since high school. You find out that 15 years ago, they slept with someone else because they didn't think it was fair that you had slept with two people, including them, and they had only slept with you. They only did it to fix the power dynamic, which is why they never told you until they got really drunk on Menashevitz one night. Would you stay with this cheater? Who was it? Who'd they hook up with? It was a random flirty barista. No, mm-hmm. I'm going to go. Because of the barista? <sighs> I just don't like, I don't like that. If they wanted to have, a, if they felt that way, talk to me about it and we can like be open for like a day, <laughs> you know? And then to hold on to that secret for 15 years or more. Yeah. I mean, in the, that- and what? In their mind being like, I won. No, fuck off. Well, they had this deep-seated insecurity about it, and they fixed that insecurity. No. (laughs) I mean, I think their deep-seated insecurity is valid. Uh, Maybe that means that we would need to talk about those power dynamics more. Uh, Yeah, probably not. Maybe. What am I doing? I'm constantly going around being like, I've seen two dicks. I'm just constantly going around. No, it's just something that they've just hyper-focused on for years. No, fuck that. No, (laughs) unless I'm like every day being like second dick, then like, no, I'm sorry. Wow. Yeah, it would be less for the one moment of cheating and more for the like 15 years of 
dishonesty about this issue. That's a valid point. That comes up a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're right to, we'll leave this cheater. And then they can really get a bunch more notches in their belt. Because honestly, if, if it was like this happened last week, I'm so sorry. Like, I just felt this way, whatever. We can work on it. Mm-hmm. But the right, secret exactly. keeping for 15 but years. But I will say for the last 15 years, your relationship's been better than ever. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, it was I, a good relationship. But since then, it's been a great relationship. I do enjoy the idea of trying to make the relationship better. On, by yourself without sort of involving the other person. But at the same time, this is not the way to do it. I agree. All right. So we'll move on from the best relationship we've ever had. The real only relationship we've ever had. That is true. Wow, <laughs> that's true. Uh, what's that first guy I hooked up with doing? Should I go back and find him? They, unfortunately, they died. Of what? Oh, They spontaneously combusted. Because <laughs> that pussy's so good. <laughs> they blew up. And it actually happened in in high school. And then that while you were mourning, you got together with your current partner. Oh, wow. so it was a trauma bond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. yeah. It's a lot gotcha. to think about. It is a lot. Very to think about. dramatic teen movie. That could I was going to say that's a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> OK, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, 14, wants to be a cartoonist. But all of their cartoons they post on Instagram are really mean and make fun of everyone in their life. When their friends get mad at them over a cartoon, (laughs) Melissa's laughing. (laughs) You tell your kid that friends come and go, but art lasts forever. Are you a terrible parent? Everyone hates them. What are they writing? Just really biting cartoons of all their friends, just making fun of them and 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 the the cartoons are are hilarious, but they're That's really the mean. they're really they're funny. really mean. They're good. Yeah. <laughs> so the parent is like pushing their career yes. and their art. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're like these are doing well. They're really well done. They're funny. They are cruel. They're very cruel. <laughs> but <laughs> is there a way I could steer them to to making stuff up rather than like to fictionalizing? Well, no, you or- have to answer. Were you a terrible parent if you did this scenario? What ends up happening to them? Are they a famous cartoonist? They become a famous cartoonist, but they don't have any close relationships. So they lose all the friends that they made. I think that's fine. And they hurt your feelings a lot because there's a lot of cartoons about you as well. You know, am I? maybe if I wasn't so roastable, you know, <laughs> maybe if I worked on not being so roastable. This is a personal problem. Right, exactly. <laughs> I I think fostering a child's creativity young and believing in the value of their dreams is just so important. Um, That being said, I don't know, maybe encouraging them to have conversations with their friends to see how their friends feel about the the cartoons. And I don't know. I would be like, I'd be like, wow, I raised a really sassy, savage little bitch. And that's and that's and I'm proud of myself for that. Because if you can, if you raise a kid who can just get to the jugular with wit, oh man. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Is my kid a gay man? No. Oh, that's the only time that's fun. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a, a, a straight woman. Well, but that's still, that's still okay to me. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> Not the answers I expected, but you made some good points. Don't you love to be surprised by hypotheticals? Yes. Come on. Okay, our final game. Is this a date? You are at Lowe's, not Home Depot, trying to figure out how to do a DIY renovation of your bathroom. 
When you mistake another shopper for an employee, Uh they tell you that they don't work there, but would be willing to help because they just redid their own bathroom and have a lot of tips. Is this a date? Are they coming to my house to look at my bathroom? They're going, you're going to like pick out all of the stuff at at Lowe's together. Why were they at Lowe's? Um, Because they had to get some really strong tape, but they won't tell you what for. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it should not be a date in that case. <laughs> That's so funny. I would think, okay, I'm addicted. I get into these discovery shows and I'm addicted to a show right now called See No Evil, which is all about hit, like uh, CCTV footage that helps solve crimes. <gasps> And uh, in one of that, and and what I've noticed, a recurring theme is that A, the person gets caught. They'll be like, I totally didn't do the murder. And then there'll be like a surveillance video of them buying like bleach and a shovel. And you're kind of like, okay. Or it'll be, uh, I would think that that person wanted like an alibi or like to be seen on the CCTV footage, like walking around with me so that when they do buy the tape, it's like not that suspicious. Oh, so I would think that I was being taken advantage of for some sort of alibi situation. Leah, do you also go there in your brain? (laughs) Yes. The moment I hear tape, no reason, strong tape, I would have said, (laughs) leave the situation. Uh, That being said, I don't think it would have. I mean, I don't see it as a date. Although if it was, you know, I mean, if it was my girlfriend at Lowe's, offering that i would have been like right okay that's so- what i'm saying it's always about if you find them attractive okay, or is not. it is it a hot yeah. girl yeah it's a hot girl yeah i'm in <laughs> i'm in too <laughs> like take take be damned hot man <laughs> hot man i'm like okay ted bundy but like hot yeah. woman i'm sort of like yeah all right what is the risk what could she possibly do with that tape you know what i mean fine <laughs> Unfortunately, it was not a date. Darn. And they were using the tape to stick all of their stuffed animals to their ceiling so that when they wake up, the first thing they see is their stuffed animals. And that's creative. It is. Yeah, they're really cool. They're just not into you. That's fine. (laughs) It seems like sort of like some sort of like alternative modern art, which I'm okay with. Yeah. Yeah. Love that for them. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people follow you and find out all about all the amazing work you're doing? Oh, thank you. Um, you can follow me at Leah Juliet, L-E-A-H-J-U-L-I-E-T-T on Instagram and my website's LeahJuliet.com. Thank you guys so much. I really, like I, I said earlier, this has been like a not intentional manifestation since I was like... 15. Um, so, so really, this is full circle. I really appreciate it. And thank you for, you know, the voices that you uplift on your podcast. Oh, thank you so much for, for sharing such important stuff and for everything that you're doing. Of course. Oh, it's a love fest. <laughs> <laughs> Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about avoidance. Or will we? No. <laughs> It's time for topics. X, 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 baby. 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 I'm looking at us in the screen and we look great. (laughs) Yeah, we do. We look so good. (laughs) 
So I picked the topic of avoidance this week because I have been really avoiding rewriting my book because my editor did not like it and I have to do a massive rewrite and I don't want to at all. And and it just got me thinking, what what do you guys avoid stuff too? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Until it's like the last minute to do something and then I'll do it. But yeah, I do avoid things. I come up with excuses for why I can't do it or I'm just tired or, you know, I just need to relax. Is it the same stuff that like the same part of your work that you keep avoiding? It's mostly writing. Yeah. 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 Definitely that. I thought when you said avoidance, I thought you were talking about like emotional. Like I thought you were talking about like avoiding um, like um, engaging with your emotions. Well, that's fair. It falls under the category. I thought you were talking about sort of putting off uh, addressing sadness or anger. (laughs) I did think that, too. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I put in the little parentheses what stuff are we avoiding in our lives? I know. Made it broad. Emotions, vulnerability, (laughs) feelings. I definitely procrastinate like I try well I I try to put stuff together and then I make a lot of lists and then it's like good to check things off the list but I'll check off a lot of small stuff and then I'll be like wow I really did a lot today but it was like literally like take something out of freezer like it's like very (laughs) and I write and I feel accomplished when I do those things and I think we should write them down I think so sometimes I'll write it down right before I do it so then I can cross it out write it down after I did it just so I know that I did it yeah I made a list of a bunch of stuff that I have to do every day and I put it up in my bathroom like my do my exercises put the minoxidil on my face take my meds like all that kind of stuff but I also will avoid stuff that doesn't have a deadline so if it's like a a work thing that there's no deadline I used to be so good like I used to just do things of my own accord so much and now I'm like one I I need money. And two, I'm just like trying to to do stuff to make money and not I'm not like, oh, I have this free time to put together a spec script or something. But I but I want to like I want to be writing more and I want to be, you know, self-starting. But do you know how hard it is? I've been self-starting for like 10 years. That's yeah. what I was going to say is like at a certain point, I feel like, oh, I keep I keep making things and no one wants them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's hard to keep going. Yeah. This industry is not it's, <laughs> is not for people who are well. Like we didn't choose this because we're stable. Like this industry is just it's so much self-starting in a way that I wasn't prepared for. Right. Like I went to school for journalism. And I was like, I'm just going to journalism job. But I did so much freelancing and that is self-starting and running. And like, I just didn't realize that so much of being a writer was going to be business and like little things, right? Like, I, like I remember I was like, okay, so I'm just going to be able to write in my little like hole of writing. And then it was like, no, you also have to do taxes and invoice and blah, blah, blah. So like as a creative, you think, oh, I'm just going to have all this time to be creative. And then all of it is spent avoiding sending forms. Oh, I avoid the forms. I daydream all time about the day that I hit the lottery and then I can just sit and write. And then I'm like, will I actually do it if I did? (laughs) You would just be on a beach somewhere. (laughs) Or just like 
saying I'm going to write, you know, like lying yeah. there thinking about it and then not actually doing it. My only motivation, my, my, I love writing, but some of my motivation is a lot of times money. And Cheyenne and I, my sister and I were talking about it. And we were like, imagine if we had like r- rich parents, like imagine if our parents were billionaires. I was like, would you do anything? And she was like, no. And I was like, I wouldn't either. <laughs> I'd probably write my fan fiction all day. Right. Exactly. <laughs> or you can, you can pay to have your movie made. Yeah, exactly. No problem. It's been interesting because I think for people have anxiety in different ways and some people's anxiety leads them to put stuff off. And then for me, my anxiety, I have to do it right away. And so that's why it's been so interesting to have this such an avoidant relationship with this rewrite of my book. Like it it, it feels like new to me in a way. Like I've had like elements of it, but normally Mm -hmm. it's like- You're not a procrastinator. I'm not a procrastinator. And so to now be- like procrastinating and doing literally anything else I could possibly do cleaning, other than that. Oh yeah. Changing cleaning. the sheets. Oh, yeah. you better believe it. Oh, mm-hmm. I got to do these dishes or, you know, yeah. let me make this TikTok. It's like scary, but I have to like, remember that like people do this all the time. Yeah. Like people avoid stuff all the time and then it, and then their lives don't implode. I mean, I would avoid opening my mail, which I think would cause my life to implode. I don't touch mail. Okay, what? You don't touch mail? What are you talking about? It's disgusting. As you've seen, there's literally a box by my mail thing where it just collects and I haven't touched any of that mail. Well, how do you know about your bills? You're on auto pay? Yep. And and it's like paperless? Mm -hmm. So what's in the mail? Trash? No. What if it was something important? Because you are going to be getting a check in the mail from us. From what? From From the the live live stream. You paid it online, didn't you? Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. Never mind. No, no checks in the mail. No checks uh-uh. in the mail. <laughs> but I've had checks in the mail or like I've had uh, um, like a license plate. I mean, a license delivered or things like that. Or I'll throw something away and then Bank of America will be like, did you get your new debit card? And I'm like, fuck. Yeah, it's like that comes, you know, I'll open it and then clean it off. But like, yeah, I know it's coming. I don't want to know what people want from me. I definitely went before I lived with John, I would avoid the mail big time. Like I would go like days and days without checking the mail because I was always so afraid something bad was going to be in the mail and I didn't want to see it. Yeah, it was for me. It's I wouldn't say bad. I, I just feel like mail is a chore for some reason. It is. And when I was living in a place before where like I had an actual mailbox, now my mail just gets like dropped inside. But I would get little notifications from the post office all the time. Like, if you don't check this, we're sending it back. Because it was full? Yeah. Yeah. I get very nervous that, I mean, I'm always like, I have to open my mail because I am I always think that the IRS or my credit score is going to come for me. Constantly afraid of the IRS and my credit score. Here's another thing about the mail is that I get, you can sign up at the post office to know what's coming for you. Oh, I yeah. have that. I yeah. have that. So, like, yeah. if something's coming, I know. I avoid like if someone I'm not very good at if someone tells me something hard I'm not very good at being like I have to I've started saying thank you for telling me thank you for sharing that or like learning scripts to say like if someone tells you something hard about their life or about you about their life or if I share something about myself I always want to be like it's not a big deal it's not a big deal Mm. Like, I don't I don't want emotions happening near me. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I feel like you say stuff like that all the time, but I feel like my experience of you is not that. Well, that's good. That feel that's good. 
I don't know. Like, I feel like you talk about your emotions. I feel like you talk about your emotions, but I've never like really shared anything specifically emotional with you. <laughs> right. I know. Yeah. Because I'm like, let's just let I don't want to bother anyone. And let's just like, I don't know. It felt it was no, like, but no, she's saying no. like you she doesn't do share. Your you emotions. share your emotions, but Melissa doesn't share her emotions with you. That's fine. Yeah, I but feel that's like, what you don't you don't want people to share their emotions with you. I feel badly about it. I think they should, but I also don't know that my response will be anything but like, oh. And I also yeah. have to learn. Like, I have to sometimes. I've learned. Like, I'm so sorry that happened. Sometimes you get mad at people for having emotions. Yeah, in my experience, like if I'm upset about something and you don't think I should be upset about it, you sort of just yell at me. I'm not yelling. I'm just, I'm trying to comfort you. But my way of comforting is being like, no, you shouldn't feel that way. To deny my reality. Yeah. <laughs> you no, do do that. I have noticed I'm like, you do Because that. I'm like, don't, no, don't feel bad. No, you, that's not true. You're wonderful. You know what I mean? You but do like, that a lot. I need to just be able to be like, yeah, it's okay that you think that versus like jumping to like, we'll fix it. Or like, no, that's not what, it, you're or wonderful. Just, you're amazing. Sometimes people just want to share and don't necessarily and they don't need me to fix it or yeah. to say that's not true you're so great and I don't think you mean it but it has a level sometimes of like condescension of oh. like do you know what I mean of yeah. like like you're an idiot to think that but it's thinking bad things about but yourself he thinks that you are <laughs> yeah because I'm like <laughs> why would you think that about yourself that doesn't make sense to me but then you me. think horrible things about yourself all the I'm time I'm a hypocrite <laughs> That's the thing is that sometimes it's easier, a lot of times it's easier to see things in other people that they don't see in themselves. Right. So I'm like, why would you ever be sad? You're amazing. And then people are like, yeah, but I'm just sad about this thing. And I'm like, well, stop it. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's I'll just okay. say what should I ask you to say? I hear you. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I guess it does create a dynamic where I don't really go to you for that. Uh, but sometimes we're talking about things for the show and then that will happen. But, but yeah, sometimes people want. Sometimes people want me to hype them up. Why don't you ask them, though? Okay, I'll ask. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what do we rate this episode? I'll rate it 12 out of 11, turning your trauma into activism. Ooh. I will rate it 78 out of 24. Beautiful makeup. You look stunning. <laughs> you look stunning. Those eyelashes. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Unless you don't want to look stunning. And no, you I feel do. okay. I'd like to. Okay. Do you feel bonita? You should do that, that sound. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I just don't think I can get to this right now. <laughs> or ever. <laughs> Thank you to Leah Juliet for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin, and me, Gabe Dunn, produced by Melissa Diamond Montz, edited by Coco Lorenz, executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can follow this podcast at Just Between Us Pod on TikTok and at JBU Podcast on Instagram. Also, I'm on Instagram now at Gabe S. Dunn. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Raskin. And on TikTok at, at Allison Raskin Baby. And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun. So branding's going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us.
forever. Dog. <laughs>